Let me pray for us before we begin. Fathers, we continue our conversation about evangelism and your call on our lives, um, all of our lives, to be bearers of the good news. We pray for, again for the Spirit's work this morning through the Word of God that you would uh, open our hearts to hear what you have to say to us, that we would be um, um, sponges ready to absorb what you want to say. As we often say when we talk about evangelism, no doubt we come to this conversation and this topic with some uh, perhaps fear because it scares us to talk about spiritual things to people uh, with some um, sense of guilt because I think most of us think of times past where we had golden opportunities and passed up, passed them up. Um, some sense of frustration because we increasingly live among, uh, in an age among people who feel like um, to talk about spiritual things is to be offensive. It's, it's almost like burping at the table. It's, why would you do that? And yet we know that what we have to share is the most important thing in the universe. There's nothing else that um, has as much impact. There's nothing else that has as long-term of an impact as the good news of Jesus Christ. And so again, we pray for the work of the Holy Spirit this morning. We pray against the work of the enemy who loves it that we increasingly live in a culture where important things are, can't be talked about or only certain important things can be talked about, not others. And so we, we pray that you would bind him and muzzle him this morning, that we would increasingly take our cues not from the culture, but from the Christ we serve. And increasingly, we would war against the fears that so easily beset us. And then increasingly, we would love both the gospel and the targets of the gospel, the people who need to hear about our Savior. And I pray that you would um, speak to us this morning <clears throat> through me when you can and in spite of me when you must for Jesus sake amen <clears throat> so it was uh, fall and it was deer hunting time can I get a witness that was my last year in Bible college and um, we really didn't have the money for me to go hunting. Betty said, this, we don't know what lies ahead. We don't know where we're going to serve. We could end up in the city and maybe never have a chance to hunt again. And we were actually wrestling with urban ministry possibilities at that point. And so I went hunting. And uh, you guys that, and gals that go hunting, you know, you prepare to go hunting. So you, you have a couple trips to the sporting goods store or Walmart a couple weeks ahead. And you have a plan in mind. Maybe you're going to a new area, and so you have topo maps that you review and look over, and, and uh, you get prepared. I always told my sons once they got old enough to hunt, I said, there's, a, there's a, several things that you can do without, and there's several things you can't do without. So if you forget everything else in your prep for a hunting trip, make sure you take your license, your gun, and your ammo. Um, a lot of other things, if you don't have the right hat along, you might be able to pick that up on the way, some things like that, but gun, license, ammo, you're in world of hurt if you don't have those along. 
So I got up to the cabin <clears throat> that year, and Sunday night, I was thumbing through some old um, uh, hunting magazines. I think it was Outdoor Life. And I came across an article about still hunting. I had no clue what still hunting was. I'd been hunting 13 years at that point. Still hadn't gotten a buck. I'd got several doe. But, um, and I'm reading down through this. I'm thinking, this, this kind of hunting is for me. I have terrible circulation in my hands and feet, so I can usually stay at one spot maybe two hours on a, on a not-too-cold day, but then I have to get moving to, to warm up. Well, still hunting is all about moving through the woods stealthily and learning how to walk real quiet and sneaking up on your quarry instead of hoping against hope that they'll come to you. This was days before uh, game cams and all those kinds of things that kept, help you do the homework ahead of time. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to try this tomorrow. Well, it turned out to be the perfect day to try that because during the night it had rained, a soft, gentle rain, and so that had quieted the leaves down. It was still raining just a little bit. And so I parked my car up the mountain, about three-quarters of the way up the mountain, started working my way down over the mountain. I was hunting alone. I don't really recommend that, but I was. Um, It's pretty tough to still hunt. I found out when my boys got older. It's tough to still hunt with more than one person. And uh, so I'm working my way down the mountain, and sure enough, about 1 o'clock in the afternoon, I heard a noise down below me. I was just getting down to uh, the tree line where the conifers started, and there were some hemlocks there. And I just crouched down, and I saw a buck coming through on the other side of a hemlock. I could see his rack through the trees. It was that big. And, boy, of course, you guys who hunt, you know, the heart starts to go, ba-doom, ba-doom, ba-doom. My wife always laughs when I get a hunting video on or, or watch the hunting channel. These guys are narrating their hunt, and they're going, <sighs> and my wife's out in the kitchen going, <sighs> and so this deer had no clue. I'm only about 40 yards from the deer. He had no clue I'm there. He jumps over a fallen tree, goes on the other side of a hemlock, and and instead of going down the hill like I was afraid he did, he, he came back toward me and went up a little rise uh, uh, t- to my left, about th- uh, 35 yards away, about a five-foot rise, stood there broadside and looked the other way. Boom. And he took off like a rocket, ran 75 yards and died. And I walked up to him, and it was a perfect eight perfectly symmetrical, side to side, rack, just almost uh, 20 inches wide, my first buck. And I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. I was so excited. Here's my point. Now, and, and I should say to you that hunting doesn't have the same joy for me anymore. Um, thanks to the Pennsylvania Game Commission's misguided herd mismanagement. That's, I'll, I'll just stop there. Well, <laughs> I used to, I love deer hunting. Oh, man, I, I just couldn't wait for that week in the fall right after Thanksgiving. I loved to hunt deer. It mattered to me. And wouldn't you agree with me that things that matter to us, we prepare for? Things that matter to us, we prepare for. It doesn't matter whether it's hunting or gardening or preparing a good meal or trying to get a good job or getting into university or 
or trying to do well on a test, things that matter to us, we prepare for. And I wonder if we would say this morning that evangelism matters to us. I want to have us look at a couple of different verses. As I said, we're going to start in first, uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. <clears throat> and this is right before Jesus went back to heaven. He had been raised from the dead, uh, hung around here uh, over a month. And f- right before he goes back to heaven, he has this conversation with his disciples. Now, his disciples were Peter, James, and John, and you know the rest, Bartholomew, Thomas, and, and James, and Judas, and on and on. Now, one Judas was dead. He had hung himself after he betrayed Christ. But there's 11 key disciples left, but there's more than 11. We t- find out from the book of the first chapter of Acts that there was 120 Christians at that point, 120 followers of Jesus. So this message wasn't just a, a generation of key followers who were going to die off. This message was a, a, a message to all who would eventually follow Jesus. So that means if you're a follower of Jesus, this message is for you, not just for some guy that's been dead 2,000 years. Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now let's just stop right there. If that's all Jesus said, there was no elaboration. We might have thought that he was talking about uh, you're going to receive power to uh, heal people, raise people from the dead, cast out demons. And there's no doubt that by the Holy Spirit, the apostles did and others have down through history, and that may very well be how you're going to have a a power, the power of the Holy Spirit, or how you're going to exercise it. But Jesus went on to say, I'm thinking about this power specifically when I'm talking about the Holy Spirit's work in you. And you will be my witnesses In other words, he's following this up saying, this is how that power is going to be especially manifested in you. And you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. In other words, wherever you are, you're going to be my witnesses. Now, isn't it fascinating? He didn't say, you're you're supposed to be. I command you to be my witnesses. This is not prescriptive. It's descriptive. It's an assumption that every one of us who names the name of Jesus Christ is a witness. Not called to be. We just are. And not only are we to be witnesses, or not only will we be witnesses, but we're to be prepared witnesses. Let me take you to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. 1 Peter 3, the middle middle of verse 15. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. If someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. Now, I hear in that word ready that I have some preparation to do. That if somebody comes up to you on a train and out of the clear blue and God finally answers your prayer, asks you, how do I become a Christian? You're ready. Tell me about your gospel. You're ready. Oh, uh, you people, I, I know you're a Christian and you people talk about the need for Jesus. Why do I need Jesus? You're ready. Always be ready to give an answer. Christian, 
Are you ready? Would you have responses like this or would you be scratching your heads? I don't, I don't, I don't know what to say. Now, this passage, again, taken alone, would sound like all we have to do is passively be ready for somebody to come up to us. And if you've been a Christian any length of time, isn't this what we all pray for? I want somebody to come up to me and say, tell me how to become a Christian. Tell me, tell me about this gospel you have. I'm like, yeah, I've been waiting for that all my life. And I don't know about you, but that usually doesn't happen. Not only are we witnesses, we're called to be prepared witnesses, but we're even to be a pleading witness. Let me take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the middle of verse 19. And he gave us, meaning God, he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. He's talking about the gospel. Now, verse 20. So, in other words, because he's given us that message, so we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead. In other words, there is this, there is this initiating. We're going to people and, and pleading with them, begging them, come back to God. So while the first Peter passage sounds passive, we know from this and elsewhere that God, God is summoning us to take initiative. Listen, when the President of the United States picks someone to be an ambassador to some country, does that ambassador stay home? Let's say the President assigns um, uh, a, a woman to be an ambassador to Uruguay. Uh, she going to stay home in Washington, D.C. or New York City? No. They're going to send her where the Uruguayan people are so that she can be an ambassador for the United States in Uruguay. <clears throat> and she's not going to simply wait till the officials of Uruguay, the leaders of Uruguay, show up at the, uh, at the embassy. She's going to be making contact with them. She's going to speak to them. She's going to talk about why, why uh, America wants this done in this country so forth, because she's the ambassador for the country. And you... If you know Christ, you are his ambassadors in this world. Pleading with people. Come to Jesus. Say, well, people might make fun of me if I do that. And Jesus said, if they hated me first, why would you think otherwise about yourself? If they make fun of Jesus Christ, and they did read the gospel accounts, why wouldn't they make fun of us? If they think <clears throat> that Jesus is a nut job, why wouldn't they think that you're a nut job? You remember what Jesus said? If you are ashamed of the Son of Man, if you're ashamed of me, the Son of Man will be ashamed of you when he comes back in glory with his holy angels. Make no mistake about it. If you're going to talk to people about Jesus, some of them, some of them will push back in a way that will leave you feeling empty, foolish, used. And that's okay. 
because those people are the ones who desperately need Jesus. And who knows but what you may say today might bear fruit and grow into a sizable crop six years from now. Let me give you a couple suggestions this morning about, that's a little bit about who we are, witness prepared, witness pleading witness, but how it is that we prepare. I have two points under this. One, that you absorb your faith. Now, uh, remember the pergola I was talking about last week? Remember that? Were you here? It's done. Finished it yesterday morning. Now, the problem with our pergola among other problems, um, is that birds like to sit up there. We have a lot of trees around it, and we have bird feeders and so forth. They like to sit up there and mess it up. And so if you paint one coat a week earlier, you have to go back later, and you have all this dirt that has to get out of the way before you put the second coat on. Now, I take a a bucket and a sponge up there, crawl up in the ladder, and... um, if I would try to clean that bird dirt off with a dry sponge, doesn't work, does it? But if I put it in water and I absorb that water, now I've got something with which to attack the dirt. And you, if, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, one of the things that I, I, I think it's easy to assume is I've become a Christian, now I have the gospel and I can share the gospel. And that's true, but I would attach a but after that. Be, be, because it, it can become, um, when we think about when we cross the line from uh, death unto life, it can become very simplistic. And we have this uh, idea, okay, I just tell somebody... Um, Um, accept Jesus and you'll go to heaven but that really doesn't say much about the gospel doesn't explain why we accept Jesus or how we accept Jesus or what accepting Jesus means it doesn't say anything about the implications for this life in addition to that life and so when I say absorb the gospel I'm talking about that you, you are continually taking in the, the truths, the basics of the gospel through the scriptures, maybe through books, maybe through uh, courses like we're in Jesus is Everything and Monday nights we, we just talk about the gospel a lot over and over, over and over, over and over. Why? Because Jesus is everything. And so that you're continually reading not only the Word of God, but, but the key scriptures that speak about and reinforce the truths of the gospel. Romans chapter 1 through 11. Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. Especially the first chapter. Genesis chapter 3. Listen, you cannot fathom the gospel apart from Genesis chapter 3. Why? Because the gospel is only for sinners. And there are a bunch of people that you live next door to and you go to school with and you work next to that really don't think they're a sinner. Some do. But for a lot of people, sin has been eradicated from their vocabulary. And so Jesus is only good news to those who see themselves as a sinner. Jesus even said of himself, he said, look, I didn't come to call people who think they're righteous. I came to call sinners. 
sinners, people who know they're sinners, to repentance. So some of these key passages in the Scriptures, again and again and again, reorienting ourselves to, the go- okay, the gospel is not just praying a prayer and going to heaven. The gospel is a sinner recognizing that by virtue of his or her sin, he or she is at odds with God. Oh, it's worse than that. We're enemies of God, Paul says in Ephesians. And under God's wrath, automatically, we we come that way out of the womb. uh, David said in uh, Psalm 51, I sinful from the time my mother conceived me. He didn't say that she, in the act of conceiving him, was sinful, but he was sinful. I am a sinner by virtue of being a child of Adam, Romans chapter 5. And I'm a sinner by virtue of the fact that I act sinfully. But I'm under condemnation for both. Absorbing the gospel. Knowing the key points of the gospel. And here's where I make my pitch for two weekends from now. We're having an evangelism apologetics conference here at Keystone. Dr. Mark Farnham from LBC. I was talking with uh, one of Mark's colleagues this week uh, at LBC. And I mentioned that we're having him come in, and he smiled, and he said, buckle up. I said, what's that mean? Is he intense? He goes, he said, you're in for a real treat. And so Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday night, and then Mark will be preaching on Sunday. You're going to hear about how you can be a better witness. You're going to talk about some things like, uh, is the Bible reliable, problem of, of evil in the world, and how we can talk about that to some people who aren't Christians. And uh, we've extended the, the cheap date uh, today and tomorrow. You can sign up for the um, early bird pricing yet. But Tuesday, come Tuesday, everything's going to be 5 bucks more. $10 a person, $15 a couple, $20 a family for as many um, children 12 and old, older are in it. We'd love to have you do that. Go online. Uh, keystonechurch.org, sign up there, or you can sign up back at the Information Center. But let me reiterate, the things that matter to us, we prepare for. So the question is, Christian, does the fact that people around you are waiting to hear from you and from me that there is a God in heaven who so loved them that he gave his one and only son for them, does that matter to you enough that you're going to prepare that you're going to prepare for God to use you in their lives. Absorb the gospel. Second suggestion I have for us is to ask and ask for and be alert to divine encounters. So what do you mean? So in the morning, when I spend my time with the Lord, one of the things that I try to do is ask God, prepare me today should I have an opportunity to sit with somebody or talk with somebody that's not a believer, that you open a door for conversation. Prepare for me. Prepare me for divine encounters and help me be alert to them. Because I don't know about you, but I've had far too many times where I've had a golden opportunity to mention something about Jesus, and an hour later, that's when I realized it. Um, asking for, and God help me to be alert to those divine encounters. Just a couple of basic ways to kind of prepare ourselves for evangelism. So I just want you to think about what is it. You, you invest the time, don't you, to learn your job well. 
You invest the time to learn your particular sport well. You spend time practicing every day after school, and you, you play the game, and you go to clinics, and, and you pay, sometimes you pay vast sums to go to a week's training during the summer. What about the most important thing that you and I can do as a believer for those around us who need Jesus? Um, how many of you know the name Howard Hendricks? Is that a name that some of you do? Howard uh, just passed away about four years ago, I think. <clears throat> a man that was deeply impactful in my life. He taught at Dallas Seminary for uh, 60 years. <laughs> Amazing. Um, before I, um, several years after I came to Christ, um, I, I went to LBC and heard him uh, teach on making disciples. And I got his series of tapes, became very influential in my own life in disciple making. Um, I probably listened to that set a dozen times or more. I shared it with a lot of people, some people that I knew, uh, know that here and now I shared it with. Um, he was a fantastic educator, a man who loved the gospel and loved people. But he uh, didn't grow up in a Christian home. His dad was a military man, pretty harsh man. And after Howard came to Christ, um, he's sharing the gospel with his dad. It became evident not only did dad not want to hear it, but it was becoming off-putting. And so <clears throat> Howard backed off and just kept praying for his dad. At some point in time, there was a pastor that was flying through Detroit airport, and another pastor friend gave him a tape. This is years ago, before DVDs and CDs. He gave him a tape and said, uh, of Howard Hendricks, said, you should listen to this guy. I, I think you'll find him helpful. And um, Butch Hardman was the pastor who received that uh, tape. Uh, he said, okay, he took it home. He'd listened to it, and he was helped by it. And in that tape, Howard recounted about his father not knowing the Lord. And Butch um, was pastor in the Arlington, Virginia area. He decided he's going to start praying for George Hendricks, and he did. Uh, several months after that, <clears throat> uh, Butch was at a conference in Philadelphia, and he met Howard Hendricks for the first time and shared with him that he was praying for his dad. Howard said, I appreciate that. It was some years after that, and Butch had, was in a small church, and he, as pastors do in small churches, they do everything, and he drove the church bus. And so one Sunday after the service, he was uh, dropping all the kids off at their stops. He's driving the bus. He just dropped the last group of kids off. When he sees on the corner of the street somebody that looks very much like Howard Hendricks, Stops the bus, turns the ignition off, gets out, and walks up to this older man, and he said, I'm sorry, he said, but is there any chance that you are Howard Hendricks' father? And the guy goes, yeah. <laughs> are you a student of his? And he goes, no, he says, but he's really helped me a lot. And he invited the man to come to his office sometime, and George took him up on the offer. And they started seeing each other uh, occasionally and then more frequently. Sometimes they'd be at the church office. Sometimes they'd be out in a restaurant. And, and Butch never invited him to church. He just listened to him tell war stories over and over and smoke his cigars when they were in a restaurant where that was allowed. This was a lot long years ago. And he built a relationship with George, and he had been in contact with Howard, and 
telling him what was going on. And then George was diagnosed with uh, throat cancer, and the doctor said it was terminal. And so one night, and George was frail, ill health by now. He's, he's in bed most of the time. One night, Butch went over to see him, and he said, George, he said, tonight, instead of you telling me a story, I want to tell you a story. He said, I'm leaving for the Holy Lands in a couple days. And he said, I want to tell you a story before I go. And he proceeded to tell him the story about Nicodemus who came to Jesus in the night because he didn't want any of his friends to see him hanging out with Jesus. And he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And by the time Butch was done telling the story, frail as he was, George not only put his faith in Christ, but he stood up and with a shaking hand rendered a military salute and said, I now serve a new commander-in-chief. And Butch called Howard that night and said, you're not going to believe this, but your dad just put his faith in Christ after 42 years of a son praying for his dad. Now, I, I just think about this man. Again, preparation. He started praying for a man he didn't know. He started praying for the father of a man he didn't even know. Continue to pray for him. <laughs> Stops the school bus on the off chance that this guy, in the middle of several hundred million people in this land, might possibly be a man that he'd been praying for for some time. Strikes up a relationship with him. Not going to dump the gospel on him the first time. Strikes up a relationship with him. Becomes a friend. And then tells the man what he needed to hear most. The word proactive, cut it down in two pieces. Pro means before. Active means doing something. When we react, a reactive person waits for things to happen. And then they set about trying to respond to it. Proactive, somebody plans before what they're going to do. We prepare for things that matter to us. Are you and I preparing for this most important calling? Or maybe I should say identity, because Jesus said it is who we are. Are we putting the kind of intentional preparation into this wonderful, glorious, life-giving message as much as we're investing in some other things? Father, thanks for Jesus. Thanks for Jesus. For the life that he has given me and so many of us. And pray that even those that might be here right now that don't know that life, that you would be opening their minds and hearts to the possibility that they would want to serve Christ, that they would want to have the new life that he offers, the full life, the eternal life. And I pray for myself, for all of us here who know Christ, Lord. There's so many things that demand our time and attention. Good things, not evil things. And yet sometimes the good things can overshadow the most important things. And so for us, Lord, that we might be the kind of witnesses that are ready 
in a moment to give an answer for the reason, the hope that lies within us. And in a moment, ready to notice, oh, I think God is in this moment. He's orchestrating a divine encounter. And I have the greatest news this person could ever hear to share with them. Help me to do it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. The greatest news we celebrate this morning, gospel to Jesus Christ. And um, some of you know I had a little bout with short-term amnesia a couple weeks ago. It was kind of scary, but doctors say it's a one-time deal. I have a half hour, half hour out of my life where I don't know what happened. I have another half hour where it's body memory. And we do that spiritually sometimes. We forget the most important things. And so the Bible speaks about the communion celebration as a remembrance, an opportunity for us to remember. Second Peter uh, chapter 2. That's not right. First Peter chapter 1. That's not right either. It is Second Peter. Amnesia continues. There we are, 2 Peter 1. Starts in verse 3 talking about how God has given us uh, his divine power for everything we need. All life and godliness. And then he talks about the things that should mark a follower of Jesus. You know, moral excellence and um, we should be, uh, have this in mind and do this and so forth. And then he gets to verse 9 and says, um, when these things are not exercised and practiced in our lives, it, it, it's evidence that we have forgotten that we have been cleansed from past sins. Now, on the one hand, the elements that we're about to partake of, the bread and the, and the cup, are reminders of what Jesus did on the cross. So the cup depicts his blood. The bread depicts his body. But why did he go to the cross? One of the exercises we do in Jesus is everything is we make everybody make a list of all of their sins, which is kind of depressing. Unless you do it so that you can remember how awesome Jesus is and what he's done. Because if you're not really a bad person, the gospel is kind of ho-hum. You know, if we think, ourse think of ourselves as not really bad people, the gospel is like, eh, it's a yawner. But when, when I realize that I, I'm a condemned felon by virtue of my rebellion against God, then the gospel becomes glorious. Glorious. Would you take 60 seconds right now, just kind of bow your heads, don't look at anybody around you, and review your sins.
God, I thank you that every one of them, from the smallest to the largest, has been taken care of by the blood of Jesus Christ, who cleanses us from all unrighteousness, who's taken our sins and removed them as far as the east is from the west. Praise your holy name. And all God's people said, Amen.